This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Good evening, everybody, and welcome. It's a great honor to be here, uh, and I'm so glad that I see so many people, many of you who I've met. Some of you have not, but hopefully during the course of the evening and later I'll meet you. Um, this is the second year in a row that The Atlantic has decided to do this event with UC San Diego, and I cannot thank you enough, uh, mainly for your good taste, because I think, <laughs> I think if you looked around, you would not find a place better than UC San Diego that in a, literally a matter of 50 years, which is less than most of us out here, less than the average age here, uh, has gone from just a thought in somebody's head to really a spectacular, one of the top 10 universities in the country. So we are indeed honored and we are proud that we are able to uh, join with you. Uh, this is a very unique event in the sense of it's like Davos-like, uh, and I've been there a few times, or TED-like, where you bring like leading thinkers, thought leaders, scientists, sociologists, technologists, and think about the future of life. And there is no better place to think about that right here with the sun setting right behind you, right? And this evening, there is no better person to talk about the future of life than one of our very own, um, UC San Diego. So if you look at the 21st century, I think if there is one greatest accomplishment of 21st century, which was actually published in 2001, it was sequencing the human genome, uh, which is the only one that I can think of in 21st century, an accomplishment that I would count. And that was done by none other than our very own Craig Venter. Uh, he was... He got his B.S. in biochemistry and a Ph.D. in pharmacology and something else, right? Physiology. Physiology and pharmacology. Um, an amazing person who left NIH and said, you know, enough of this federal government. Uh, can I use the word B.S.? And I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to do it faster, cheaper, and better. And that's exactly what he did. And I think that... Uh, uh, discovery is really going to lay the foundation of the future. And there is no better place than UC San Diego to exploit it. We are the biotechnology hub in the country. We are on the top biology, biomedical sciences, top health sciences department in the country. And to add to our pizzazz, Craig has decided that he's going to create what is called the Venter Institute. It's going to be located right on UC San Diego property, and it's going to look at and define the future of human life uh, 
going forward. And that's what I think he's going to talk about today. He's also the founder of a couple of companies, but I'm not going to talk about his private wealth. Uh, <laughs> so, so you might wonder, what do Craig... I did have dinner with Craig a couple of days ago. I have to tell you this. So it was about two-hour dinner, maybe three hours. Actually, it was more than three hours. And you might say... What does this information science computer scientist have in common with a biologist who really invented, is going to invent the future? And it turns out, after three hours of great food and tedious conversation, we did figure out that we have one thing in common, and that's wine. And, <laughs> and, and we both love good wine, except that his taste is superior, more expensive, and more forward-looking, just like his science. So with that, Craig, welcome. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And thank you very much, Mr. Chancellor. Thank you also, Elizabeth. Um, thank you all for being here. And Dr. Venter, it's an honor um, to have you. I'd like to maybe start off right where the, where the Chancellor did with... Um, Wine? Well, with wine, <laughs> we'll get to wine at the end. I'm going to start at the future of life with a very broad question. The, the, the technologist Peter Thiel has kind of criticized our era as having a kind of crabbed or dark vision of the future, that we're either too obsessed with gizmos that he doesn't consider revolutionary, or when we do um, take a more capacious view and exercise our imagination, we wind up with something more like the Matrix than like the Jetsons or Star Trek, which I think you were a fan of back in the day. I wonder where you are on that spectrum, um, your own sense of what's possible or what's actually likely. Well, you know, you can't be a successful researcher and not be an optimist, right? Because you do what uh, my uh, late mentor, Nate Kaplan here in La Jolla, taught me is if you talk yourself out of doing the experiment, you'll never make any progress. So pessimists always talk themselves out of doing the experiment. And uh, one of the things I'm most quoted for uh, on Twitter is uh, the statement of, I don't know whether optimists or pessimists are wrong, but optimists will at least get something done. Um, and so I am optimistic, but you know, it wouldn't be hard to be pessimistic when you look at what we've done with our, our current population. Uh, last October, we passed 7 billion. We're going to add another billion people in the next 10 years, and 11 years after that, another billion people. And we can't feed, provide clean water, housing, energy for the 7-plus billion people you know, how we're going to add three billion more in a short part of people's lifetimes if we don't have technology and major changes. Um, overpopulation is already leading to uh, new infectious disease, and we can come back to that of infectious, new emerging in infections versus uh, fear of biological warfare. Um, uh, the, just depleting the environment like we're doing, we're changing the chemistry of the entire planet. So what can we do about it? And uh, we seem to be unwilling as a population to make radical changes. So it seems to me the only possibility is to come up with major new technological innovations, those that can eliminate taking carbon out of the ground in the form of oil and coal and burning it and putting it in the atmosphere, uh, having new sources of food that are far more productive uh, than this ancient system we have of farming. 
new sources of preventative medicine uh, through the human genome. So I'm actually optimistic if we can actually adopt new technologies that we need to to save uh, uh, ourselves. Um, you know, a, a famous uh, uh, producer once said that there's only uh, two approaches for humanity. Either we have to find another planet to go ruin, um, or we have to be able to use my technology to change the human genetic code uh, to morph humans into more uh, humane species that don't destroy their own environment. Um, but I think we can actually change things. In fact, the iPad shows how fast a new technology can permeate permeate society in a short period of time if it actually enables something. Um, people think maybe communication is fairly trivial, uh, but uh, we will be able to send biology through devices like this in the near future. So I, I'm pretty excited about the future. Well, let's talk a bit about the, the, the pace of change in your own field of synthetic biology, which you should probably define. I'll leave you to that. Uh, leave that to you. Um, you've at times sounded uh, excited about how fast they're moving, things are moving, other times frustrated at, at how slowly they seem to be moving. You've said this century will be remembered for how little and not how much happened in this field at one yeah. point a couple of years ago. Um, I wonder where you are now in that um, spectrum of optimistic versus pessimistic as pertains to, to your own field and what you're most excited about in your own lab? Well, when you look in at any area from the outside and it's not something you follow or know intimately and there's a major discovery or change such as creating the first synthetic life form, people's first response is things are changing way too fast. If you're working in the middle of it and seeing how slow these discoveries come out and you look at the federal budget and how much money we actually invest in science we should be outraged of how few real breakthroughs there are and how slow they come. Uh, it's because we fund a lot of Me Too research versus breakthrough ideas and new ideas. And so it's part of this slow grinding process um, that takes things far longer than they should. No, no organization that was really trying to make progress would ever settle for the kind of system in the way we fund science. Um, all the breakthroughs, even though uh, my institutions have had uh, a huge amount of public funding, all the breakthroughs have come from uh, either private donors uh, or some independent source of money that allows you to do the experiment that the federal money won't allow you to do. So um, people look at our work think it's moving really fast and it's scary because it's moving so fast. Uh, it took us uh, about 15 years to get the first synthetic cell when initially we thought it would take two to three, but we had to overcome hurdle after hurdle after hurdle because nobody had been there before. So it was very slow and painful to me. So it's both. Let me pause just for a moment on the, on the funding question because I've heard you several times in the past address the question of, of your, your creative approach to all, uh, developing alternative funding streams and... and um, you've been very clear that you don't think of yourself as a businessman, but as a scientist just trying to get your work funded. Do you think that the... the, the, the I'd like to turn that around and ask you, do you think that... What is the government's proper role in funding research, and why does the, doesn't the system work as effectively as you'd like to Well, see there's it? some areas um, that the government has to be the one to fund things or to create policies to help drive things. 
For example, the biggest thing that I'm disappointed didn't happen during the first Obama administration, we didn't get a carbon policy. So oil companies were coming out of the woodwork to invest in alternative energy. Uh, this time, just before Obama uh, became president, uh, right after the election, because they were afraid he was going to have a major carbon policy that was going to be a major tax on all the carbon producers and abusers. And that didn't happen, and that plus the discovery of natural gas uh, in abundance is now once again largely wiping out biofuels as an alternative. So we keep going through these cycles of uh, gas prices go way up, there's a lot of innovation, lots of funding, then it goes away. So the only way something is really going to happen in that case is first off with a policy that drives it, because it doesn't matter how successful anybody is is creating new fuels, the oil companies can always undercut them. In fact, the more successful the new fuel is, the cheaper gas would be. So it's a cycle that can never win unless there's a price on carbon. Uh, so I'm hoping if, if there's a uh, second Obama administration, the, the number one goal will be a carbon policy, because uh, we need that as a society very badly. Likewise, the funding for programs around that carbon policy, uh, those are things that government have to do until it gets to the point where industry will pick it up again. And the same with healthcare and diseases. Um, you know, it, it's very clear there's some diseases, like diabetes, where industry will invest billions of dollars in new treatments, uh, new diagnostic, new devices, because it's a huge lucrative business. Uh, it's chronic care. Pharmaceutical companies love chronic care. Um, they're all bailing out of making new antibiotics, antimicrobials, antivirals, at a time we need them more than we've ever needed them, but because acute treatments, like treating somebody for a, a viral or bacterial infection, is nowhere near as profitable as a long-term chronic disease treatment. So their businesses adopt for the long-term uh, treatment. So. Uh, we need to have the government drive things that industry won't do that society needs, like new antimicrobials, new antivirals. So there's, there's ways to drive it in a specific fashion. Um, you probably know from what I wrote about before, one of my earliest disappointments in science, and just how I left UCSD with a very naive view, uh, was when I went to NIH, I assumed NIH would be a place where knowledge was integrated, uh, collated, and decisions were based on that knowledge to tell us where to go next. And my di biggest disappointment as a young scientist was getting to NIH and finding there was no there there. No nothing's collected, nothing's collated. It's, uh, they let uh, the average of the scientific community drive where they want to go and who they're going to give money to. Uh, it's a pretty dumb way to, to run a business, a country, uh, a scientific endeavor. Uh, most of the breakthroughs come out of labs where people cheat the system or they have private donors or they have some way to do it. You know, then the successful scientists uh, basically get their grants to do what they've already done and then they can use the new money to do something new and that's how they make breakthroughs. <laughs> 
but you, you know, you have to cheat the system a little bit to do that. All right. Well, what is your next breakthrough going to be? Well, I, I think the most exciting idea that we're working on right now is uh, what we're calling biological teleportation. That sounds uh, exciting. So, uh, <laughs> so we, we, we found a way where we can uh, move uh, proteins, viruses, and now uh, single living cells at the speed of light. Um, and so it's not like Star Trek teleportation where you actually get beamed up. Um, or quantum teleportation, which is real in terms of affecting events of linked uh, uh, molecules at long distance, but um, we actually send, we can digitize biology, send the digitized information at the speed of light as electromagnetic waves, and deconvolute it back at the other end, back into biology. Now, it wouldn't work to send you someplace, but uh, we, 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 we could send your genome and, you know, create a younger you. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Could you improve the genome on the way to... You know, it depends on you know, what happens during those, elect- <laughs> those few seconds that's being transferred. But uh, the implications of this are immense. You know, the future of manufacturing is distributed manufacturing. So the key things for the future of manufacturing are going to be the cost of basically the, the goods, the materials for manufacturing, and the cost of intellectual property. Um, you know, people will have 3D printers in their homes. One of my board members has four 3D printers in his house. And, uh, you know, now instead of going out to get uh, new covers for his iPad, he prints his own, uh, you know, which are trivial things. But uh, pretty soon there'll be 3D printing of chemistry. Uh, But with our biological teleportation, you'll be able to download insulin from the Internet, and we'll just have a little box that'll attach to your computer. Right now, it's a pretty big box, uh, but like with most technologies, it'll shrink pretty fast. Um, or think of what happened, or the test we've already done is we're working with BARDA and the U.S. government. So the U.S. government does do some good things and driving areas that uh, aren't being done in others. And uh, with Novartis, um, with H1N1, it took about nine months to get a new vaccine out. Uh, and a lot of people died while waiting for that new vaccine, and there was even a priority list of who got it first. Uh, So we've reduced the time to make a new vaccine uh, from months uh, down to hours. So right now, BARDA sends us a test sequence as electromagnetic way through email of a new pandemic flu virus, and we make uh, that new virus in 12 hours and get it to Novartis, who has a multi-billion dollar facility, mostly funded by the U.S. government, to manufacture uh, billions of doses of flu vaccine. And so we do now send that information by electromagnetic wave. But instead of having one giant facility in North Carolina to make flu vaccine, what if you just had a little box next to your computer, and as soon as there was a new pandemic, 12 hours after we made the new uh, uh, virus and knew that it worked, uh, we could send it to you in less than a second anywhere in the world. So universities, uh, companies, uh, individual homes will in the future be able to download medicines and vaccines instantly from the Internet. So movies like Contagion 
will never happen. How it, far off is that future, do you think? Well, I mean, we're doing it now, so it's a question of how fast can we shrink down the boxes and, you know, what's the FDA going to do with regulating you downloading drugs and vaccines to your own printer from the Internet? Um, it, it's going to disrupt the entire system, so it's going to be uh, a little bit difficult uh, to deal with. Um, uh, at least for some government agencies. But uh, what we do with synthetic genomics, it's a merging of the digital and the biological world. And that's what we did. We first read the genome and digitized the information. And then we started with the ones and zeros in the computer, uh, remade the genetic code with four bottles of chemicals, then booted it up to make a new living self-replicating cell. Which you did two years ago. That, that's what we announced in, uh, uh, two years ago. In creating synthetic life, yes. as you've called it for the first time. You know, I, I think uh, the analogies and the metaphors you use in talking about this make it quite clear. You talk about it as software and, and essentially replacing the operating system of an existing bacterium with a new operating system and thereby creating a new form of life. I think we can all get that, um, uh, being, fam being familiar with downloading and installing mm -hmm. new software. So then it sounds incredibly easy, actually. Once you put it in those terms, it sounds very simple. And I wonder if you can articulate in the same kind of layperson's terminology what the big obstacles are to um, creating more elaborate forms of, of synthetic life. So we're doing an experiment now. We've designed the first cell in the computer that we've just finished synthesizing its genome. We're trying to make a minimal life form to understand basic, a basic operating system of life. Uh, and so we're about ready to do the transplant to see if it works. Uh, if it works, you'll hear about it. <laughs> if it doesn't, we'll go back to the design and, and, and work some more. But in the problem with the design is, and it gets back to the problem with how we do biology and how it's funded, even with the simplest organism we have, it's the smallest bacteria, the smallest genome of a self-replicating cell. How, how large is that genome? It's... Very tiny. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you need a good, really good microscope to even see it. Um, it only has uh, around 500 genes to start with. Uh, but 100 of the genes that we know are absolutely essential for life are of unknown function. So with all the money we spend on biology, we can't even tell you what a quarter of the genes that are essential for life and the most basic organism does. And everybody thinks we've saturated our biological knowledge. Uh, my other quote that some classes have to write essays on is, I said, we don't know about biology. Um, because we don't. We're at the earliest stages of biological discovery. And so it's very hard to design something from scratch when you don't know what a quarter of the essential parts do. It's like you're trying to design a new car, and there's these things that, you know, it's called a transmission. We don't really know what it does, but if you don't put it in, it, it's not going to work. Although but you my might new, wind up putting it in the trunk or something yeah, and uh, not connecting it. To although the my new car has no transmission. It's, oh, right. just, uh, yeah. it, it's a computer. Tell them about your new car. I, I have the, the new Tesla S car that uh, is going to truly, <laughs> truly transform transportation. It, it's the quietest, smoothest, fastest, most advanced 
car I've ever driven. And growing up in California, I've driven a lot of different cars. And it's absolutely amazing. It goes 300 miles on a charge. Um, if you charge off the grid, depending on where you live in the world, you know, some people will say, well, electric cars are just coal-fired cars if you have coal-fired uh, power plants. Um, in San Diego, we have a combination of wind and natural gas, and I have solar panels on my roof, not of my car, of my house, so I, I'm charging it for free. But even if you have a coal-fired uh, power plant, you charge it from the basic mileage computing is about 86 miles to the gallon. You know, if you're charging off of solar power, it's free. Um, so I, I think, and it's so, you know, those of you who use touchpads, uh, um, it's a complete touchpad car. You know, there's no moving parts anywhere. Um, and it's, it's connected to the Internet full time. And uh, um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's an example, and hopefully it will get adopted as fast as uh, the iPad will. But so here, that's a very high-functioning piece of engineering in which all the parts work. Yeah. Um, but, but the process you were describing before, as I understand it, you, you wind up kind of having to grope around and guess about what combination of genes yeah. might actually animate the cell yeah, in you, the end. We learn, you know, biology is still in the empirical phase. We learn by trial and error. And how rapidly can you perform the experiment? So, so that's, that's the key thing. So as the cost of sequencing has fallen, which has been absolutely amazing, so... Ten years ago, we had a 60,000-square-foot facility for sequencing the human genome. Now it's something the size of this chair that instead of doing it in nine months, like we did at Celera to beat a 15-year government program, uh, we can do it in about three hours. So the technology on the sequencing part is changing. There hasn't been as much emphasis on writing the genetic code, but there's starting to be now. And so we can go orders of magnitude faster and further. So uh, because it has to be an iterative process, because we don't know all the answers, you need to be able to do large numbers of experiments and then screen. So we're trying to get it so we could uh, maybe make 10,000 phage genomes a day to screen for something that would work against uh, uh, drug-resistant Staph aureus. So it's all through straight DNA synthesis and then... It's a selection process. So you need large numbers when you don't have the fundamental biological knowledge. But by capturing that information, we're going to learn the fundamental biology faster than it was ever possible. So we're actually trying to build a self-learning robot that can learn biology 10,000 times faster than any scientist can because it can learn from doing the iterative experiments and make the changes and redo them. Do you see why it might creep people out a little bit to imagine <laughs> a robot sitting in your lab creating new forms of life faster than a human at 10,000 times the rate of a human being. I they mean, should what, be excited. What could possibly go wrong, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, it depends what you program it to do, right? So it's, uh, <laughs> or what it programs itself to do. Uh, well, uh, we're a long way from self-programming <laughs> computers. That's... Uh, See, that's, that's what we've learned. There's a lot of people that tried to create artificial life in the computers. And that went up and peaked and just crashed and realized that you can't do that. And even though we have this huge overlap between the digital world and the biological world, uh, the digital world can enhance the biological world, but it can't replicate it. 
It can simulate it. It can pretend to do things, but it can't actually uh, truly replicate it, even though, you know, Turing designed uh, a self-replicating automaton that could make another copy of itself as a, as a device. Um, but it's very different. You know, every time people have tried to do evolving software in a computer, it crashes. When your software, when your DNA software evolves, it leads to physical changes. When you do it in the compu- computer, it's just code changes, and it eventually just crashes the code. So there's a real fundamental difference between digital and biological, even though we can interface them to enhance both. So there's nothing to fear. There's there? nothing. <laughs> I feel vastly reassured. Um, uh, even if uh, you've talked in the past about um, the various controls that to prevent forms of bio error, as it's called, suicide genes and things like that, that would prevent one of these organisms from surviving out in the wild and replicating. Um, but what about bioterror? I mean, I wonder how much you, f- how often you find yourself lying awake at night worrying about the risk that as the the, the price of this technology has dropped, as the uh, the, the technology has become more distributed um, uh, that bad actors are likely to get a hold of it and, and use some of the very same techniques um, for ill. So if there's one legitimate concern, that's it with the, this space. Because uh, we've seen there are people that do want to do harm. Uh, the Sloan Foundation funded my institute along with MIT to really look at this issue in depth and Every branch of the U.S. government participated. People in the EU did as well. And maybe you won't find this particularly comforting, but they said there's so many easy ways for somebody to do bioterrorism now um, that they wouldn't bother to have to synthesize something. You can go to any, you can go to any cattle farm and find a dead cow and get anthrax from it, right? Uh, there's 10,000 freezers supposedly around the planet that have hoof and mouth uh, virus in the freezer under no control. So um, it, it wouldn't be your first line of defense uh, or offense. But I worry much more what I said earlier about new uh, emerging infections. Um, that's what a new pandemic flu virus would be. It'd be a new emerging infection. Emerging uh, naturally. Yeah. And SARS was. Uh, smallpox was, uh, you know, coming out of uh, different uh, pox species. Uh, AIDS uh, was. Uh, you know, there's several of them sort of on the fringe out there, uh, you know, that could turn into something. So there's concerns about this new coronavirus. Uh, there's concerns about new uh, flu types, because it turns out the flu can move from animals to humans to birds and back in a cycle and when it does this acquires totally new uh, variants uh, that our immune system is not ready for. That was the problem with H1N1. Um, This is a relatively senior audience. Um, uh, Nobody over roughly 25 was really affected by H1N1. Uh, It killed 250,000 young people in this country because they had no previous immunity from other similar viruses. Those of us older than 25 all had some prior exposure uh, to at least one of those antigens. So if there's a new antigen that crops up that doesn't have any prior history, it could get back to what happened in 1918 with just huge portions of the populations 
uh, being affected. So, uh, you said it killed 250,000. The H1N1 hit total of 250,000 in the U.S. Um, you know, but a large number of people die from flu each year. But what was it? It was a shift. It was usually older people affected by flu. This time it was younger people because there was no prior immunity. So we're trying to, even the way flu vaccine is done is a very slow process that doesn't even use modern day sequencing and molecular information. A group gets together in WHO and in Geneva and sort of makes a decision based on some old immunological tests that they have traditionally used. So we're developing computer algorithms at my institute because we're doing some of the major flu sequencing from around the world to track and predict the changes in the flu virus. And with the synthetic technique, we can create huge stockpiles of a range of uh, flu vaccines that all you have to do is pull them off the shelf instantly and have them ready. They can even be preclinically tested. Uh, so using modern tools, we can combat some of the things, but we need new antivirals and new antibiotics, more against emerging infections and drug-resistant microbes that... Uh, uh, almost every hospital in the U.S. is now uh, infected with some of these. Um, so we need new approaches to this. And I think synthetic genomics has new tools there. So we're working on designing new phage uh, that can kill these microbes in a very specific fashion. Uh, they're not typical antibiotics. They're actually phage that normally kill the specific bacterial cell. But by synthesizing new ones, we can come up with a new range um, to kill drug-resistant uh, microbes. I'm going to open up to you guys after one more question here. We'll have microfo there are microphones uh, in the back of the room here, and I think there's one up in the balcony as well. So just put your hand up, and I'll, I'll try to get to as many questions as we can. But I wanted to... You, you were talking about highly specific efforts to attack um, microbes. I wonder how optimistic you are now. I've heard you over the years on uh, sound alternately, again, pessimistic and optimistic about uh, extremely tailored forms of medicine, personalized medicine, um, designing a, uh, a customized um, genetic uh, a prescription, essentially, to go after, f f for example, forms of cancer or other um, inherited diseases. It's sort of the opposite, and there's a great example now with lung cancer. So Pfizer was testing a new drug they had uh, to treat lung cancer, and it actually failed the clinical trials until a group of scientists found there was a single letter mutation in one gene that if you had that single letter mutation, 60% uh, of the people getting the drug had their uh, cancers uh, uh, regress very substantially. So it's not that the drug is made specifically for them. It's that because of selection and knowing your genetic code, if you have lung cancer, there couldn't be a more important piece of information to have than your gene sequence, because if you have that one letter change, there's a drug that could possibly save your life. So that's not manufacturing a new drug just for you. You're selecting out of the population of drugs because of your genetic code, the one that might work for you. So that, that's my version of personalized medicine versus we're going to make 12 billion drugs, and you know one will be just for you. So would you recommend that we all go get ourselves genetically mapped? Uh, I think having a complete sequence, not just what you're talking about uh, in the next session, but having your complete genetic code, 
In a very short while, people will be doing that numerous times throughout their lives. And if you have that as early as possible as a baseline, then if you have cancer, uh, you'll have something immediately to compare it to. Or even what we're trying to do here with stem cells. Um, we're starting a major stem cell genomics program because it turns out as soon as you take cells out of the body, the genetic code starts to change. And so even to have stem cell therapy be effective, you want to have those stem cells sequenced and make sure that you're not going to get cancer from your own cells because they've mutated. So there's some, several labs here. I, I heard they talked about it today uh, somewhat of people are studying my brain cells and tissue culture made from a skin biopsy, making st- uh, uh, iPS stem cells, making neuronal stem cells, then making neurons. But we've tracked them, and there's so ge- many genetic changes in those neurons. Now, some of those changes might help me. Um, people like to think they would, but uh, there's a lot of oncogenes that get activated and things. So getting stem cells without knowing the genome first and making sure it's corrected, um, that would become an essential part of stem cell therapy. Um, so I lied. That was two questions. I'm sorry. There's one right here in the front. Uh, so so knowledge, knowledge is power, right? The more knowledge you have, the more power you have over your own life. Hi, Dave Proffer. I was curious. I went over to the uh, consortium today, and I think I saw a, a J. Craig Ventor neuron didn't look anything like you, by the way. But, but to was that it point, firing away? It, it was strong. <laughs> Were there but, sparks coming out? <laughs> but you're familiar with Ray Kurzweil yes. and his projections. And I don't know if you know Robert Lanza and biocentrism, some of these concepts. I wonder, back to your 100 missing concepts, do you, do you think about what, and the fact that our cells turn over in, what, 10 years, what makes up us? Do you, what amount of time do you put into that concept and your thoughts on that? Well, uh, you shed about uh, 20 billion skin cells every day. You replace your entire skin by new cell synthesis every two weeks. You do the same with your intestine. Your brain cells uh, last a little bit longer uh, for most people. Um, (laughs) But everybody thought they were permanent and didn't turn over at all. There was constant uh, turnover uh, even in the brain. Um, I like being on programs with uh, Ray Kurzweil because he makes me seem like a pessimistic conservative. <laughs> we have a question, question up up here. Yeah. Uh, Alexis Magical, sorry. I'm James' colleague, so he can't turn me down. Uh, <laughs> um, Craig, I was wondering, do you have estimates for if I were to get my genome sequenced at, say, 18, and then, or let's say 20, 40, 60, 80, do you have any idea, like, how much would, do we think it might change over that time? Because I think people think of it as a permanent feature of their bodies. Yeah. Um, nobody knows for sure, but uh, uh, in fact, the initial thing was, uh, because I get a lot of sun from surfing and sailing and things like that, uh, because the skin biopsy for making those neuronal stem cells that, that you saw in the lab uh, were from UV-damaged cells, um, that that might be why there were so many genetic changes. And my biggest concern was in the future they'd want to take biopsies from where the sun doesn't shine. Um, but, but it turns out uh, uh, it, you know, the UV damage, uh, while there is some, gets uh, pretty well corrected. But what we lose over time is the ability to correct errors in our genetic codes with the same fidelity. 
So the genome clearly changes over time. Um, and, and so these would be great experiments uh, for people to do. Uh, in fact, uh, we've been doing, uh, Roger Laskin at my institute developed single cell sequencing. So we can do a human genome off a single cell, which means that you can actually do uh, the genome on a single sperm cell. And so we've been, uh, to do haplotype phasing, I joke that we sequence a handful of sperm. Um, and you can see why every kid comes out different, because every sperm genome is a little bit different. The, the sperm is just a haploid genome, which means it's only half of the genome. But everyone has, on the average, of one crossover per chromosome, which means it's half of the other parental chromosome uh, in a different configuration every time. Everyone is different. And so if you look at a, a million sperm, you'd have a million different variants in the genome right there, uh, which is why you rarely get the same answer twice uh, when you have uh, uh, children. So the genome is dynamic. Uh, our lives are dynamic. Or it, life is a part of dynamic renewal. And that's why the key concept of DNA being the software of life you take the DNA out of any cell in biology, the cell will die. Because our cells, our proteins, have very short half-lives. Most of our proteins live less than 20 hours. So if you're not constantly making new ones, you're dead. Uh, and so understanding those changes and those variations uh, is going to be an important part of the future. This will be uh, what Larry Smarr is doing, self-examination by looking at... Uh, all your genomes and how it changes over time will be a new hobby for people. It'll be part of employment for editors. A question from a non-Atlantic person. <laughs> <laughs> what? Oh, up in the balcony. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, question for you. I mean, you know, the public at large is understanding all the changes that are going on with science. I mean, the... The, the map is not the territory, something that a philosopher said in the 20th, the 20th century, that you know, we've mapped the genome, but there's a lot of talk about the, the map of the signal we actually mapped. But in the, recently, the concept of junk DNA actually having meaning, and that you know, people said, like, we've got the, we, scientists talked about junk DNA, but you know, over the summer there were some news stories about, well, we f just found out that actually that has a lot of meaning, and there's a lot of information there that, that's very quite important. How does those new inputs to the map, you know, change the territory of, of how we understand life? So that, that concept of junk DNA really meaning, it actually means something. Yeah. So it, it, it's actually a very important point that helps to see that the scientific community is not necessarily as smart as people think it is. The fact is because we didn't know what 95% of it did, many people referred to it as junk. But when we sequenced the genomes, we found it was highly conserved through a huge range of species. It was clearly not junk. Uh, Sidney Brenner uh, tried to make a joke out of it and said that uh, there's a difference between junk and rubbish. Uh, rubbish you throw out, junk you store in your attic for later use. But uh, uh, it was clear that it was important evolutionary-wise, and we're going to be probably for the next hundred years making discoveries and in what the people in a stupid, arrogant fashion called junk. Um, so it just shows that the scientific community itself is very limited in how it thinks about things, and unless it's driven by new information and new data. The, the good thing about the scientific community, it adapts in a positive way to new information 
and new data. But um, uh, that's a great example of it. Um, how about in the back there, Natalie? Craig, uh, Stacy Cremitis, UCSD Osher Institute. <laughs> uh, my question is a very practical one. I want to follow on from the Chancellor's introduction. Uh, in my home, will I need a 3D peripheral and a biological teleportation device to download wine when it's available in France? <laughs> um. Well, it's going to be an interesting way. I mean, it, there'll be components of it you can probably do that with. And, you know, there's some industries we don't necessarily want to mess with. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> can we come all the way up here in the front? Hi, my name is Guest. It's even on my name tag. Uh, where is synthetic life going? When you're creating synthetic life, it's exciting, but what is the long view? What are you looking to accomplish, and uh, what is the future of synthetic life? Oh, thank you for asking. So we have modest goals of uh, replacing uh, fossil fuel energy, uh, ridding uh, the world of uh, most of what we know as agriculture, uh, and changing how we uh, produce clean water uh, and medicines. Other than that, we don't have a, a, a lot of great uses. <laughs> how is the fossil, if I may ask, and I'll come to you next, the fossil fuel project going? You told The Atlantic five years ago that in 10 years you expected to see significant progress. So five years. I guess to you go, have to ask and, me in yeah. five years. Well, I'm just I'm asking for kind of a midpoint assessment of how we're doing. We well, feel very invested now. In yeah, this no, you know we we have some great teams, particularly uh, uh, people working on uh, modifying photosynthesis. So the key part of how we capture energy from sunlight and convert it into chemical energy is how everything on this planet works. That's how we get oxygen to breathe. That's where our food comes from. And so we can capture that energy. And for the first time, we've been able to genetically modify photosynthesis to make it more efficient. Uh, and that has huge implications for not only trying to, uh, in cells like algae cells, produce uh, hydrocarbons, whether it's for food or for fuel, um, but potentially could change and make agriculture substantially more efficient. Um, the limitation is how much light hits how much surface and the efficiency of the photoreceptors to capture that energy. So for the first time, we've been able to uh, not only uh, improve the efficiency... Um, in the algae. In the algae cells, um, but with a master control gene that might work across uh, all of plant life. Let's go here, please. Uh, I'm uh, Danielle Weiss, and a local San Diegan. Um, I have a question regarding your major concern about uh, viruses and bacteria coming out natural or otherwise um, to, to affect the human race. What about, you said, treatments making um, antibiotics from phages? Could you explain that and kind of the disconnect between what you see us needing and industry's inability to put the money where it's needed? Well, so uh, what I was discussing are new emerging infections, uh, things that either jump a species, uh, such as uh, H1N1 did, uh, where the virus moved from 
chickens to pigs to humans, um, or what's happening with uh, MRSA, the completely drug-resistant uh, Staph aureus, which is probably one of the biggest dangers uh, uh, facing health in this country. Uh, you're not unlikely to get it if you go to a hospital. So hospitals are good places to avoid, uh, especially if you're sick. Um, uh, in fact, we, we measured what's in the air uh, just off the end of Scripps Pier here in a home in La Jolla, buildings in New York City inside and out. Um, and the home in La Jolla and uh, the air in the hospital both had the same percentage of viruses and bacteria. But the ones in the hospital were all uh, pathogenic organisms. The home was just general ones that blow off the ocean and off of land. Um, and so the challenge is uh, when companies are going out of the business of making antibiotics. A few years ago, Lilly shut down its entire antimicrobial program because they make so much more money off of diabetes. Uh, and Homeland Security has tried to fund some programs, but they've been very limited uh, and not very successful, mostly focusing on vaccines. Uh, so we need to come up with new ways to make things very quickly in response to these infections as they came up, as they come up, and will come up. I think we have time for two more. Oh, sorry, Suzanne, please. How are you? I'm a local PhD candidate at UCSD. And this is a friendly question, Dr. Venter. I'm optimistic about your projects and um, have, have long been inspired by your work. But I've also been long concerned about overinvestment depending, that depends on, um, a, on too much importance placed on the value of DNA as the command and controller of the cell and as the place where all genomic material is. There's work by Sidney Brenner, who you already mentioned, and the philosopher at MIT, Evelyn Fox Keller, emphasizing the contribution of the cytoplasm in DNA. So when you talk about something like the minimal DNA, what did you say? You said the minimal number of genes for life. It may be the case that the cells that have the minimum number of genes might have special cytoplasmic equipment and won't that help these small number of genes produce a life form. And it might not be the case can, that if you, you transfer these... Can you move to a question, these, sir? I'm, I'm sorry. Oh, sure. Here's, here's the question. So there's inheritance through cytoplasm. Prions, for example, in the cytoplasm in yeast can be beneficial. Not all inheritance is in DNA. If we invest and do research because we have DNA tools, which are excellent, that depends on us thinking that DNA commands and controls the cell. We might make a mistake, and I wonder to what extent is your research open to the possibility that cytoplasm does a lot in this, uh, there's a lot going on in the cytoplasm, a lot going on in protein pathways, and that DNA alone would be, um, it would be a mistake to focus on DNA alone. Okay, I hope you're in a PhD program in a philosophy department or something. So it's a <laughs> I could tell it was not a basic science department. So, uh, in fact, what our experiment showed with, uh, with the synthetic genome is that everything, including everything that's in the cytoplasm, everything that people consider epigenetics, 
is genetics. It all starts with the DNA. When you replace that software, it replaces everything in the cell. The new cytoplasm, everything comes from that genetic code. So it doesn't matter that it's in the cytoplasm. Epigenetics is still genetics. It all starts with a genetic code or the synthetic cell never would have worked. So um, we, we can refer you to some literature to, to help with the I'd, basic science. I'd like to take one more over here, please. I mean, if you could. Thank you, Dr. Venter. Uh, what are your thoughts on the fact that a lot of parents are now avoiding vaccinating their children? Um, we hear about the impacts of that, but just wanted to see what you particularly thought yeah. on that. It, it, it's one of the most frightening trends we have and it puts us all at danger. Uh, because if you don't vaccinate your kids and they get a new form of mumps or measles, uh, they threaten the rest of the population with that, even if they've been vaccinated because you could be perpetrating a new strain. It, and it's one of these phenomena that uh, doesn't seem to have any social economic barriers. Um, I was on a plane with a very well-known billionaire uh, funding major a major science institution and his daughter was asking whether she should vaccinate her kids. She didn't want to do it because she was afraid they would get autism. I mean, this is supposed to be a society that's based on evidence-based decision-making and it's driven more uh, by rumors, in innuendo. People want to believe something because they don't believe that having kids at age 40, 50, or 60 is contributing to causing genetic diseases they wouldn't have if they had their kids at age 20. Um, and so we find other things to cover up for those explanations. So if you have a chance to get vaccinated, do it and urge all people in your realm to do the same thing, or we're all at danger. All right. Um. I think at least I, for one, may wind up dreaming tonight about robots teleporting various life forms to each other as they zip <laughs> around in their Tesla cars, but I'm nevertheless hugely grateful, Dr. Venter. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you all. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. It was good fun. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.